Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on, we'll be hearing about the electrical signals that our gut produces. But first up, the very latest from our ancient past. In the last few years, there's been a revolution in our understanding of New Zealand's ancient biota. And it's a revolution that shows no signs of stopping. To find out more, I catch up with three experts after a recent conference on animal paleontology and evolution. I met them at St Bathans in central Otago. This is an ancient lakeshore that dates back about 16 to 19 million years ago, and it's one of our most important fossil sites. Discoveries here have already rewritten New Zealand's prehistory books, adding creatures like a crocodile and a small terrestrial mammal, as well as lots of birds. Here's Paul Schofield, Trevor Worthy and Jamie Wood to bring us up to date with what they and other experts have been discovering. There were two talks at the conference that highlighted how much has actually been happening in New Zealand in the last 10 years. It's really quite amazing. In fact, one of the talks by Alan Tennyson from Te Papa was actually discussing the fact that we've dis- described a new extinct bird species every year since 2009 in New Zealand. So it's certainly not true that we have a complete handle on extinction in New Zealand. We're still finding and describing new species of bird. And are there still bones out there that you haven't ascribed to a species that could be new species? I can think of at least three that we'll probably be describing in the next two or three years. And one of the reasons for this is the fact that we're now using ancient DNA for these younger Holocene birds and other animals, and that's finding cryptic speciation that we didn't know about before. So what kind of birds are being discovered? Well, the most recently described species was a shag that was found in the dunes of Northland, and we gave the name Kohatu shag, and that's a species closely related to the critically endangered king shag of Marlborough that Trevor actually identified a few years ago as being in existence but um, we've only just now um, determined what type of animal it was and the fact that it was different from um, the existing shags. Paul and I and Vanessa DePetri just did a review of all the things that have been happening in the fossil record in New Zealand in the last less than 10 years, last seven years. So going back in deeper time from the Holocene, we have doubled the known number of fossil birds in in the last seven years. So what do we know now about, for instance, the site where we are here, the Manahara here, what do we know about the fauna here? We we know quite a lot, really. There's something like 70 species that we can say existed here. A lot of them do not have formal names yet, like we know there is an eagle and a kite, a couple of pigeons. We've named one of those pigeons. One one of the pigeons is about to be named. It'll come out very shortly. But other major groups, like the songbirds, the passerines, we, we've got a big pile of passerine bones, but we have not yet 
turned our attention to figuring out what kind of animals or birds are represented. One of the papers at the conference, if I'm right, was about the crocodile that's been found here. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Where are we at in our understanding of the crocodile? Yeah, we're getting quite a long way down the track on that. We've got about 150 fossils of it now. Frustrating fossils because each one is a small piece and so we haven't got something like a whole skull or a whole jaw, but we've got enough to know they grew to three metres long and surprisingly that there's quite likely not one but two species represented, which is a surprise to me because the the colleague who's working on that has only just determined this in the last week or so. So that's you know pretty amazing. To, it's amazing to think New Zealand had a crocodile because that's the most southern location in the world for crocodiles, full stop. But to have two as well. And it's frustrating because we don't have a nice jaw of this thing or a nice skull. So do we have enough to be able to tell us how it might relate to other crocodiles? We're evolving that understanding. Literally each piece we find um, increases our understanding of that and we're getting close to the point where we'll be able to give it a name and place it in a phylogeny which enables us to understand exactly where it belongs in the crocodile tree of life. The frustrating thing, as as Trevor mentioned, is that this crocodile, unfortunately, was probably being eaten by other crocodiles, and so its skull is being literally crushed up into into these small pieces. This site um, is slightly frustrating from that point of view because of the fact that um, we're not finding really big bits of bone. We're only finding, you know, comparatively small things. Like we've got parts of a moa femur and parts of a crocodile skull and and parts of um, some of these much larger birds. But we've got an, an amazing fauna of the really small stuff, and like really small stuff. We've got teeth only a few millimetres long from um, some of these fossil bats. Even this site here, we're still struggling to understand it and struggling to find new parts of it which might actually have more interesting bones or different types of bone. So it's still an evolving thing, our understanding of, of even this fossil site, where, where we've been working now for um, 17 years. Two species of crocodiles, any idea how many species of bats? Six species now. We've, we've looked at, or Sue Hand, who's the expert on these things, has looked at the Mr. Cenid bats, which is the same group that's the special endemic ones for New Zealand now, the, the burrowing bats. We've got two current ones living well, one we know is definitely living and one is possibly hanging on off these islets of Stewart Island. But in this site, we've got three species of those, of which we named one to an actual species. The other two didn't have the right bits. You know, People who study mammals like to have molars. And if you haven't got molars, they, they're very hesitant about naming something. But they, were, they have enough to know that there was... They were different and smaller than the one they did, did name. And then there's another one that's going into a new genus. It's, it's in submission now. It's being reviewed, a paper describing it. That's, that's a, quite a special one. So for a while we thought it might have been in its own family, but we're going with being in Mr. Day, which is the New Zealand bat special family. And we've got most parts of its, or all of its molars represented. But then there's things like the long-tailed bat. We've got ancestors or something of that family and a couple of others as well. So quite a few bats. Can I ask, where are we at with the terrestrial mammal that you once found here? <laughs> that is slightly more, more difficult because we know that now that there's at least two kinds. 
two kinds. There's two kinds. It gets more complicated. <laughs> represented by various bits that are not as informative as, as the mammal people would like. So we have, in fact, two teeth. We have a, a premolar of one that is your very average primitive mammal. It's found in major groups. So it just tells us there's a something. It could have been a dog or a bandicoot or a cat. I mean, it's something, but it's very little, and it's not a bat. And then there's another one that's got a, a molar, but it's a molar that all the mammal people in the world have never seen the likes of before. So that doesn't help either, because if you haven't ever seen it, we don't know what group it belongs to. And, and we've got some long bones and pieces of jaws, but we haven't found a nice skeleton all joined up, you know, which is you know, the Holy Grail, and it's what often happens in, in China, like in the Jeho biota, where they can you find a flat one you know, with everything there. But here we've just got these bits, which is a jigsaw puzzle, which is slightly frustrating, but that's life. Jamie, you work with ancient DNA. These guys work with bits of bones. You work with bits of ancient DNA. So what's been happening in your area recently? Well, one of the things I was surprised at at this conference was the sheer number of talks that used ancient DNA. I think if you had been at this conference four or five years ago, um, there might have been one or two talks, but there would have been almost 10 talks at this conference that used ancient DNA. So it is a a rapidly growing field and a lot more people are using it. Even uh, students of modern DNA are incorporating ancient DNA into their studies to better understand the history of um, New Zealand's birds. You were talking on the laughing owl? Yes. So tell me about that. What do we know about its relationships with other owls? The laughing owl has always been a bit of a mystery. Um, It's been placed in its own genus and um, the relationships of the laughing owl to other owls have always been a bit bit obscured. And so we were able to sequence a mitochondrial genome from the laughing owl and compare that to um, DNA sequences from other owls. And actually what we found was that it wasn't in its own genus. It was actually within quite a widespread genus that includes um, New Zealand's Mopork. So it was basically a big cousin to the Mopork. But pretty terrestrial? Yeah, so part of the reason why its relationships had been obscured in the past was that it had quite um, strong adaptations to life on the ground, and so it had quite long legs. And that probably reflects that the fact that a lot of its prey in New Zealand was on the ground. So we have a lot of ground birds. Um, our bats spend a lot of time on the ground and also large insects as well. The ancient DNA guys are now working more and more in a multidisciplinary way with the morphologists. So instead of just tackling uh, the, the relationships of the owl with DNA alone, we, the people are making teams where they get a morphologist and the DNA guy, and, and together they study the skeleton and the DNA um, from the two-pronged approach. To And so all of these new modern birds from the Holocene or, or reassessments of other Holocene bones, which or birds that we think are special, it's, it is a multidisciplinary approach now where we're mixing and matching the, what you can learn from the bones or the feathers and the DNA, not just one alone. Shame this site is too old to give you any DNA. Well, yes, but but it is important in the DNA world because what it means is if we find a pigeon here and it can be shown from morphology to be related to, say, the New Zealand pigeon, then that means the New Zealand pigeon lineage has been 
here for whatever the age of the site is. So if we say it's 16 million years, and then people start doing DNA relationships of, of the various pigeons, they have to put the origin of the New Zealand pigeon limited by this age. A great example of that was the study on New Zealand wrens, which has just come out. And so that included sequencing mitochondrial genomes of several of New Zealand's extinct wren species. And then that was analysed using the fossil of a New Zealand wren from this site as a calibration point. So we were able to use that and look at the timing of the splits between the other lineages. The exciting thing about this site is, you know, we're not even near the end of describing the stuff we've already collected. I mean... The uh, Royal Society's been very generous in funding a three-year project um, for De- Vanessa de Petrie, who's working um, on the fossil wading birds of this site, and we've already found um, a remarkable uh, little wader, most closely related to birds in Australia, the plains wanderer and the seed swipe of South America, and there's going to be some really exciting publications in the near future about these animals. I would predict that once we start looking at the songbirds, you know, we're, we're likely to find the ancestors of huyus and kokako and, and yellowheads. But we're also going to find things that are no longer here, things that we expect to see in the warmer parts of Australia. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's bowerbirds here. So watch the space. Well, yeah, watch the space. It'll, it'll be happening for the next few years yet. Thanks, Trevor. That was Trevor Worthy from Flinders University in Australia, and we also heard Jamie Wood from Manaki Whenua Land Care Research and Paul Schofield from Canterbury Museum. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe ki tō tato au horihori. He hōtaka e pānaki tō tato au whānui. This is Our Changing World on RNZ National, and now, Mapping the Gut. FlexiMap is a spin-out company from a research team led by Rutherford Discovery Fellow Ping Du at the University of Auckland's Bioengineering Institute. I meet Ping to find out how his work will revolutionise our understanding of the stomach and intestine. Just like the heart, the gut, or the gastrointestinal tract, also produce a series of bioelectrical events that govern its contractions. Now, these contractions are very important because they facilitate digestion. So, so di- we swallow food, yes. it goes down our esophagus, gets into our stomach, and, and the intestines, and the intestine, and yes. there's electrical signals all the way down. Yes, and these electrical signals, as I mentioned, govern these contractions. So it makes sure that food comes in, goes in one end, and comes out the other end. <laughs> and I mean, it it is an important process because the the whole aspect of digestion and absorption um, allows us to keep uh, you know uptake of nutrients, energy that we need to maintain all of our bodily functions and defense and recover uh, uh, against and from disease as well as the elimination of uh, waste. I think um, as we move towards a more uh, preventative uh, model in medicine, I think the role of digestion is becoming ever more important. So when I think of electrical signals in bodily organs, I tend to think of the heart and nice ordered electrical signals and what makes the heart beat properly. And I assume it's the same in our digestive system, that you want the electrical signals to be nice and ordered. Mm. The heart is perhaps the most well-known electrically active organ. Now, it is similar but different in the gut. So the way I like to explain how electrical activation works in the gut is um, I would like you to imagine a network of electric generators. Now, each generator on their own 
is capable of producing electrical activities at different times of the day or different frequencies. Now, when they are connected in a network, they undergo this physical phenomenon called entrainment, which means all these different frequencies uh, entrain or they lock into a single frequency. So you can imagine maybe a power generator in Huntley goes on at 9 a.m. and then a uh, power generator in Tihuha goes on at noon and then uh, Monopari goes on at 3. So this sequence in time allows a, a direction of propagation. Now, this exact idea, the network of bioelectrically active generators also applies to the gut. So if you take a very small sample of tissue from the gut, that tissue is capable of generating its own electrical rhythms. But then in the intact organ, everything phase lock or entrain to a single frequency. And this ensures that contractions occur in the same direction as the electrical events. So what particularly matters then is if these things get out of train? Yes, that's the key. You can imagine, I mean, I like the analogy of the power grid or network of uh, electric generators because you can imagine what happens if one goes down. You think, okay, if one goes down, the others can pick up the slack. But what if two goes down? What if uh, three goes down? At some point, the power network simply can no longer sustain itself and sustain the contractions in the gut. And that's, that is when problems occur. And there are diseases and very difficult to manage diseases that um, does exactly that to the gut. So these generator cells or pacemaker cells called the interstitial cells of Cahal, which is called them ICC generally, um, these pacemaker cells actually die. So you can imagine the bioelectrical generators in the gut go off. And at some point, the electrical activity becomes dysrhythmic or abnormal. And that is going to influence the digestive functions in those patients. So what kind of conditions do you get as a result of that? So this is where I think our group is leading the world. We've done two clinical trials that have conclusively related abnormal activations of electrical act activities in the gut to two specific conditions. So the first one is called gastroparesis, literally means the paralysis of the stomach. The second one is um, called, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's called chronic unexplained nausea and vomiting, which is exactly as unpleasant as the name suggests. The prevalence of these con two conditions in the general population is not very high. Uh, we understand, to the best of our knowledge, it occurs in about two out of 1,000 um, people. However, there's a catch. In diabetic patients, that number jumps up to 5% in type 1 diabetes and about 1% in type 2 diabetes. So its incidence is increasing. Absolutely. And as, you, as the prevalence of diabetic patients increase all over the world, um, we expect the uh, prevalence or incidence of these two conditions to increase as well. And I'd also like to add that it's one of these problems is like the harder you look, the more you find. And um, we really think um, that... Uh, especially uh, the abnormal activation associated with the stomach or gastric dysrhythmia could possibly be associated with functional dyspepsia. So that's indigestion, and that is a huge market and patient group. And anywhere between 30 to 40% of the general population will suffer from one of these diseases over their lifetime. So you say you are the world first in 
relating this fault in the electrical signalling. So how did you go about measuring that? Is this much harder to measure than electrical signals in the heart? Yes. We often tell ourselves if it were easy, it would have been done already. And um, we do have a whole bunch of electrodes uh, spread out all over the table. And uh, the closest one to us is a uh, very rigid electrodes. Um, these ones were made by uh, Professor Wim Lammers. He was a pioneer in what we call uh, high-resolution mapping in the gut. And he used to do studies in cardiology, so he, he transferred or translated this idea of recording activities from multiple electrodes from over, over the organ surface from the cardiac field into the GI field. But as you can see, these electrodes are very rigid, and as you can imagine, no part of your body other than the bone is rigid. So we really wanted something that is more flexible. So that's why we looked into another technology of making and manufacturing electrodes. And the technology that we settled on is called the um, printed circuit board technology, um, specifically the flexible printed circuit board technology. So what that allows us to do is printing um, literally um, a grid of uh, electrodes on a flexible substrate. So what you've got there is a piece of something that looks... It's probably about the thickness of masking tape or something and about as wide as a piece of standard masking tape. I can tell you it's 0.13 millimetres thick, exactly. And you know you're talking to an engineer (laughs) when you do that. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) But printed on that... Yes, there are these exposed contacts coated in gold. So these points here will act as electrodes. The other reason we transitioned to this technology is that this technology is very simple. The whole setup comes in one piece, so it can be sterilized very easily. And that is the key thing that allowed us to transition this study into um, human patients. The next step was to use the new device to measure electrical signals in real people who were having gut surgery at Auckland City Hospital. And then you get 10 minutes to record in each surgery to put these flexible patches of electrodes on their stomach. And from that, we can pick up the sequence of electrical activation. Now, after we published the data, uh, we got noticed by our colleagues in the States who invited us over. And over the course of two years, we've conducted um, a number of trials on patients with gastric or stomach conditions. So that is where we validated the relationship between abnormal gastric electrical activation and diseases. And that was done mostly in Jackson, Mississippi, in the States. So how many sensors have you got on there? And when you are applying them to the stomach, how many different recordings are you making simultaneously? So it depends on the capability of the system. Um, Our system to date is capable of uh, simultaneously record from uh, 250 recording sites. And on each one of these flexible patch, um, there are 32 uh, electrodes. Uh, arranged in a regular uh, grid. And that regularity is very important because not only do we pick up the electrical activity, we can also reconstruct the time at which the electrical activity passes beneath each electrode. And if we know where the electrodes are in relation to each other, we can reconstruct what we call an activation map. And from that, we can calculate the velocity of propagation. And that is quite interesting because we found that, um, let's just talk about the stomach on, their own, on its own, um, we found that the electrical activation in the stomach uh, actually varies quite a lot, even in the same organ. 
So the different parts of the stomach um, have different functions, and that is reflected um, in their um, electrical activation. It's all very interesting. Ping and his team are constantly refining the designs. A bulky, soldered connector that was difficult to sterilise has been replaced by a small integrated plug. Everything has been made smaller and thinner so it can be used during keyhole surgery and not just open surgery. The challenge is always to make it very compact. At the same time, the design consideration, you also have to consider how to mass produce them. Um, It's all good and well to design something that is um, ultra-fine resolution, but if it is very difficult to manufacture, then we have a problem because you know we use these electrodes once or twice and then we have to discard them. So we have to have the ability to mass produce them. And the reason for doing that is so that then surgeons can just routinely use it as for analysis? Absolutely. And this is also a part of the uh, commercialization consideration. Um, you don't want to um, have products that takes ages to assemble. And um, so you want to have a quick turnover of uh, products as well. Do you think you can get to the point where you can do these measurements from outside the body cavity without having to have the instruments inside right against the stomach? This is hot off the press. We've designed our own um, body surface um, electrodes. So the whole idea is just like the electrocardiogram or ECG or EKG, um, the idea is if you put these sensors on the outside of the body surface, you can pick up the resultant electrical potential uh, from the stomach. Now, that historically has been very challenging uh, for the simple reason that the gastric activity is about a order of magnitude weaker than that of the cardiac activity. So it requires a lot of considerations regarding signal amplifiers and processing. So I think we are getting to that stage. We know what is happening in the stomach. We're now recording from the body surface and try to draw a one-to-one relationship. Now, this idea of this technique called electrogastrogram, or EGG, ick, is not new. But what we are are leading the world is in the ability to interpret the detailed relationship between what is happening in the stomach and what is happening on the body surface. The other thing, the important thing, application about these electrodes is the um, potential design for a pacemaker device where patients uh, who who lose too much of these pacemaker cells in their stomach, um, this can be uh, implanted as an external pacemaker that help to kickstart or sustain the contractions in the stomach and the intestines. Ping says that the idea of a gastric pacemaker is still some way off. But in the meantime, he and his team have a number of related projects on the go. One is what he calls a torso tank, which he describes as a benchtop testing environment. To me, it looks like the torso of a mannequin undergoing extreme acupuncture. It's bristling with needles. I tell people, no, this is not a medieval torturing device, but what this torso tank allows us to do is um, isolate the source of electrical activation. So we can actually put an artificial source in there that can reproduce the electrical activation of the stomach based on our experimental data and mathematical simulations, actually. Um, What these needles are, they're actually electrodes threaded through the shell of the body. So this gives us a noise-free environment to look at what the resultant body surface potential of uh, the stomach activity actually looks like. So this gives us a, I guess, predictive signature of what to look for in real signals.
Are you actually putting liquids through? Is that yes. why you have a pipe coming down into a bucket? Yes, there's a drain pipe, uh, much like the rain pipe of a washing machine, <laughs> that comes down. So we have to fill up this torso with the conductor fluid, uh, just tap water plus salt, uh, to uh, simulate the fluid environment inside the body. And, uh, and then we uh, add uh, or inject the artificial source representing the stomach, and then we take recordings from the surface. So complicated and slightly potentially messy as well. It is. It is very messy. <laughs> and then how long do you run it for? Uh, we can run it for basically any length of time, but uh, for a typical experiment, uh, we generally run it for, for a couple of hours, and that, that is enough for us to get and test um, you know, a number of different protocols. So how would you use this? What are its applications? I think one potential application is we want to devise uh, or make a uh, multi-channel body surface recording device to record the body surface activation of the stomach. And by having that multiple channel, we have more information, temporal as well as spatial. And then we can use that information to more accurately tell what is going on in the stomach. And so that is a a much more accurate way to diagnose potential digestive disorders. So now that Peng's team is getting proficient at measuring the electrical activity of the gut, what are the practical applications? Well, they're not just medical. Sarah's using it to study how much discomfort and nausea people experience when they're in a virtual reality or VR environment. We have our um, experimental setup here, and it consists of the EGG belt, which is um, EGG stands for electrogastrography. We put the belt on kind of like a corset. It just wraps around your waist, and on there, there are about 64 uh, electrodes. Um, so from that, we can uh, record uh, the electrical activation of the heart and the stomach. So Sarah strapped me down on the chair for about half an hour yesterday, and um, so in the first half of that recording, um, we just sat there and recorded some baseline or normal activity, and then she made me wear one of those uh, Google cardboard, kind of like a VR headset, but it's really basic. So um, what I did was I got Ping to watch this optokinetic um, animation, which is known to induce nausea and um, other symptoms like sweating, um, blurriness, dizziness. The reason for doing this project is that um, as virtual reality is becoming increasingly popular, um, we don't actually have a way to quantitatively assess uh, discomfort. It's generally currently based on survey, which can be highly subjective. So this is a quantitative way to detect whether uh, a person has experienced those symptoms. And the underlying physiological basis for this is that the stomach is actually highly connected to the brain. In fact, it's known as the little brain. So if something happens to the brain, um, its signal will also influence the electrical activation of the stomach. So how long did Ping have to watch this for, Sarah? Yesterday it was 10 minutes. So... Yeah, he did show some symptoms of nausea and dizziness. It wasn't too severe, but it depends on um, the person as well. I just have to add that not many students get the opportunity to torture their supervisor as part of their (laughs) research project. Ping and Sarah say that the VR industry is busy trying to find ways to minimise that kind of discomfort, and their tool will help quantify how effective these ways are. It's another useful commercial application for the company that Ping has developed out of this research called FlexiMap. So how is Ping enjoying being an entrepreneur as well as a researcher?
It is difficult, I must say, but it is also rewarding in the sense that um, we are not playing with uh, just the equipments in the lab anymore. Uh, we are making these equipments with uh, real uh, purpose and applications in mind, and um, perhaps also a nice return commercially at the end of the day. But um, with medical devices, that's difficult because not only do we have to think about the market and making a product, but we also have to think about regulations, which are key. But I think with these challenges comes a greater reward as well. Thanks, Ping. And that was Ping Du from FlexiMap at the University of Auckland. And we also heard from Sarah Jiong. And that's our show for tonight. But you can always find more at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Thanks for listening. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.